1,000 better stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, one of your SCANS story weavers. In today's episode, I talked to two amazing women in charge of the two Climate Action Hub pilots funded by the Scottish Government, Alison Stewart and John Laurie. The pilots have been in place for around two years now and they represent a new way the Government plans to support community climate action across Scotland. So a pretty important topic for all of us involved in this work hands-on. In the next episode, we'll continue talking about this regional approach by focusing on regional network building SCAN is involved in, preparing ground for climate action hubs across the rest of Scotland. But today we hear from Alison Stewart, who is a hub manager of North East Scotland Climate Action Network, or NESCAN for short, and John Laurie, who wears two hats, the project manager for North Highlands and Islands Climate Hub, and the Development Manager in Thursa Community Trust. Both are members of SCAN as well and are involved in SCAN Regional Hub and Training Circles. We recorded the interview in early September. I started by asking Joan about her climate journey. So I have always had an interest in sustainability and climate change. Well, my former career was I worked at a museum for 10 years and as part of working at that museum based up in Caithness, we had fairly significant displays on the flow country and the importance of the peat that surrounds and covers much of Caithness. And so that kind of started an interest in basically how we're managing our planet. While I worked at that museum, I completed a degree in sustainable development through the University of Highlands and Islands, followed by a master's in low carbon communities. And it's community development that is my primary interest. But when I started putting together Thursday Community Development Trust, I've always seen that climate action is a route to solving inequalities in our community. Climate and having a just and fair society are very, very linked. So that was really what took me to where we are now. The trust does quite a lot of climate action. We don't, we're a community development trust. We don't say that we are a a green organisation or anything like that, but we just embed it, um, that we're embedding that kind of work in all of the work that we're doing. And that's what led us to to having the the Climate Hub um, and being selected to to run it, is that that link between inequalities and also kind of levels community engagement. Thanks, Joan. Alison? I've always been very much a person with lots of soapboxes (laughs) and real care for for rights. So it's always been human rights for me and ensuring the world's a better place and just the fairness and making, you know, but coming from very much a rights-based approach. And I, I was researching and teaching in in that um as a lecturer in law and I had very small children at that time and it just 
Avaz, who is like a, a kind of pressure group, a really effective one, kind of emailed out about um, Paris and, and said, OK, this COP, will you do something? Will you do a, a, a march and things like that? And at that point, I suddenly kind of really looked into the whole of climate change and really hit me all of a sudden, like the urgency of it and, and the fact that by the time my kids were going, getting ready to go to university, my eldest, it would be too late. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't just I can't just say to them, oh, sorry didn't do anything and the world's buggered um whoops daisy i had to at least say i tried i tried as hard as i could and you know if i succeeded that's fantastic if i didn't at least i gave it my all and i could look at them in the eye and feel i'd done as much as i could do so that's where it kind of started it started with um with one of my friends putting me in contact with eric dalhausen who was passionate about environment for a lot longer than i was or you know and um, i always loved like nature and and uh, it just all came together really and we created Aberdeen Climate Action. And then after a year or two, I basically concentrated on that full time and built up Aberdeen Climate Action and helped with the climate cafes. We really got people that were coming that really wanted to do their own climate group around the whole of Aberdeenshire and the city. So helped groups form and then created an informal network. And then we formalised that network and, and then the hub came from that. So, yeah, it's all been a very organic um, process. Most important question of this interview, and I, I think um, a lot of people probably have that in their mind when they hear uh, Climate Action Hub for the first time. Can you please tell me what is a Climate Action Hub? Do we even know yet, Alison? <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're making it up as we go along. Yeah. <laughs> we are the first two hubs, and the idea behind the hubs is that they have been created by the Scottish Government to assist communities to carry out climate action within their communities. But the format and what each climate hub is working on is dependent on the communities and the community groups and the community organisations that are within that region. So it, they are there to be very organic. We concentrate on what our members want to concentrate on, on what the priorities are for those regions. So at the moment, North Islands and Islands Climate Hub, Caithness and Sutherland has got high levels of fuel poverty anyway, um, similar to Orkney and Shetland. So, and we're in an energy crisis. So we're obviously dealing with a lot of groups that are dealing with the energy crisis and groups who are very positively looking towards long-term solutions, not just the short-term solutions that we might need this winter. But then Alison may be concentrating on completely other things. I think resilience has been something that's been quite important for for Alison, whereas in Highland, there is already networks that deal with resilience. So we're, we're there to be very organic, but support and design development and delivery, I think, would be the the, the, the keenest way that I can sum it up. But Alison might have more to add to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think our two aims, which I think sums it up to some extent, is to, as, as Joe was saying, to support and uh, develop community climate action and biodiversity gain, but also to be the voice of and for the community. So I find that a lot of my role is linking into all those those little um, committees that say that, oh, the third sector, oh, the communities are involved. And they have absolutely no communities being involved and ensuring that communities have a say. So it's very much that kind of like participatory democracy, kind of linking in communities with decision makers and also enabling decision makers to hear the views of communities. I think that's really quite a vital role and one that our members are very keen on us having as well but also it's I was speaking to Louisa who is our kind of key person at Scott Gov yesterday and she says 
it's amazing the connect you're a connector and that's what we really are too so we really are connecting people and groups together for peer support and knowledge sharing but also connecting all sorts of different um like uh, organizations and that's what I'm constantly doing and saying well you know what that and that person doing that let's all work together or you know let's make sure the food strategy then links into the you know so it's basically it, it's as Jim was saying very organic and it is very much member plus led so our members you know it's our Jim was saying about the resilience and adaption that came out with huge storms that are a lot of our members experienced um very very impactfully the start of this year um and that's really to try and boost the work that's been done by the councils in that, this area to support that. But, you know, there's also that aspect of it's not just our members, it's the whole of the community that we're there to serve. So how can we develop that and develop new group support, groups that don't identify as community climate action groups to really have a climate focus and a sustainability running through them, which I mean, Joan's been doing amazing work with the sustainability and policies in 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 our in different um, community groups and um, organizations. I should have probably asked that before, but where is your hub located, and what area does it cover? Shall I go first? Because mine's simpler, Joe. <laughs> We're very simple. We cover Aberdeen City and Aberdeenshire. We officially cover the North Highlands and Islands, so that would be anything from Inverness upwards. So once you hit that Inverness city boundary we are covering that would be designated as the North Highlands. So Caithness, Sutherland, Easter Ross, Wester Ross, and Orkney and Shetland. However, there are no other hubs in existence. And in the nature of the Highlands and the networks that exist across Highland already, we basically don't turn anybody away who is in Highland Regional Council area. Um, whether that's for support, whether that's for membership, networking, um, or funding or taking part in things like we recently had the Highland Climate Festival. And as you hinted at, um, regional hubs are supposed to reflect this place-based approach. So how your two areas are unique and how your approach differs and reflects it? Where where do I start? <laughs> um, I think that there are commonalities between Orkney, Shetland and Highland, and particularly when you get to this northern tip of of Highland in terms of Caithness and Sutherland. There is very strong links in terms of our culture, in terms of the way that communities respond and react. I'd say that there are also distinct differences between Highland and then Orkney and Shetland. There's definitely, Highland is very community-led, as in there's a very strong third sector in Highland. Not all of them are carrying out climate action, but a lot of them are looking at sustainability within their organisations and are looking to move into that realm. So we've got quite a lot of groups who are doing climate action who don't realise that they're actually doing climate action. They don't think of it as that that way. I think that this area is unique from other areas. Obviously, it's a very rural community. It's all rural communities. And Highland and Orkney and Shetland, we're obviously very rich in renewables, fully aware that we're rich in renewables. And there is that influence that pervades there. But we're also... We have high carbon footprints because you have to have a car in many of these communities. You have to be able to travel. Many of these communities, it's the only option that you have is oil-based central heating. Even just delivery of key goods and services, we've got high carbon footprints for goods and services to reach us. Quite often, even if you're running a community building, 
you will have the maintenance on that community building will involve somebody traveling from the Sentinel Belt to service your lift to do something. But also there's a very strong and pervading sense of localism, which has been enforced even more during COVID, that people in these communities want to have more local resilience. They want to have more resilience within the things like the food chain. They want to encourage their communities to thrive. We have an islands development officer who deals with Orkney and Shetlands. I've been working in the realms of Highland for a very, very long time. And I think that in Highland, there is a distinct difference in that strength within the community sector. There are a lot of networks that are there already. I mean, I think of people who live 120 miles away as my colleagues, because there's that closeness within the networks. And because Highland Regional Council is such a vast area, you really do have communities who have stepped in there and who've done things for themselves because the local authority just simply isn't able to do it. I have to say that within the area, because we cover city and shire, there is differences there. I mean, the vast majority of our members actually are in the shire because I find that rurally people are more community driven to a large extent. So Aberdeenshire is very different. You know, it's got some towns. It's got a lot of, as 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 Joan was saying in in the, in the Highlands land, it's got a lot of rural, like really quite isolated communities too. But not to extend it necessarily is in, in Highlands and Islands. So the more isolated a community is, the more it it basically helps itself and it's more kind of resilient and self, yeah, self sufficient. And that isn't so much the case in a city. You know, you have to really try to be distinct within a city in, in a community. And there are some communities that are very strong within the city. And they mostly have already got their community groups that aren't necessarily climate action uh, groups, but there's an awful lot of groups that identify as climate action groups in the Shire. So it's interesting the way it's developed. And I do feel that obviously within the North East as a whole, as distinct from other areas within Scotland, it's the whole oil and gas, um, you know, fossil fuel industry, but also in the Shire, it's a huge dependency on agriculture and, and high intensity of farming. So um, so you'll see that within the city and, and, and the Shire that's close to the city, the concentration is on the divestment and the transition from oil and gas. Whereas further into the Shire, you know, the concentration is on um, transition away from the current unsustainable agricultural uh, practices to more sustainable practices. So there's there's a difference there as well. You have to be really quite aware of and there's different priorities in different areas. But obviously, we're part of the just transition area now that, that, that the government, Scott Gov, is concentrating on. So And that is really prevalent. We've got a lot of politics, like a lot of our members that are quite are activists as well. You know, they're, we're campaigning and, and we're, we're driving for a just managed transition here in the Northeast. So that kind of stuff, that kind of level of political thing is quite, I think, a little bit different from what Joan Jones area maybe is like and um, because we have to be because because it really is right in our faces about the fact that oil and gas industry are here and that's the main you know fossil fuels are the main contributors to, to climate um change so can you yeah. uh, maybe explain more about the government's just transition area there's a just transition fund which covers Aberdeen City Aberdeenshire and Murray and Nescan Hub is really involved in all aspects of that we, together with TSIs and Money for Mori, are doing a partic- green participatory budgeting um, exercise. So one million of the 20 million of the Just Transition Fund has been uh, allocated to participatory budgeting for communities. It's a capital only fund, which has its own restrictions, and it's going to be coming live. I think it's opening in Mori next, so the 16th, next Friday, and then the following Friday it's going live in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. So 
we're busy working on the details at the moment, um, but that's really quite exciting for communities, can, can bid in for money, and then the community decides which projects get the money. That's the whole principle of, um, of participatory budgeting. The other aspects are capacity building, so we need to work more on that, but there's going to be some money and work put into enabling communities to be able to bid into the main part of the fund for upcoming years. And we've been helping communities, so NESCAN members put in together with NESCAN hubs seven bids, so we've been supporting that. And also we have been doing stuff with the main part of the fund and helping to encourage there to be a vision, a just transition vision. There's a lot of working on there. The official declaration of, of who got what in the just transition fund will be coming out Monday. So more details will be available then about the successful bids. That's exciting. You both work in quite large geographical areas. How do you cope with it? How do you connect communities? How do you reach out? So getting on the road quite a lot or getting on the rails. I mean, we are basically at more of a, a, a virtual hub in that sense. So we have tried as best as we can to recruit within the areas that we're supporting so that we get a regional spread of staff. That's something that we've seen as being really, really important. Hasn't fully worked because we have three staff members who are based in Caithness, but that's our senior development officer and our membership in comms. And then we have an islands development officer and then we have a development officer who's currently based in Inverness and we're about to have a Sutherland development officer as well. So that has helped significantly in having people who are based throughout the region. It's an odd thing in Highlands. We frequently have visitors here to Thurzo. And they kind of go, didn't realise it was quite so far away. And I'd already driven three hours from Glasgow to get to Inverness and there was another three hours to get to you. But when you live in these very far north geographies, going to Inverness is, that's fairly standard practice for us. So going off to visit somebody in Galsby or Brora, it's fairly standard practice to, to do that. The explosion of Zooms and Teams has very obviously helped. It's so much easier to key into. We go to things like a lot of community council meetings because they're still meeting online. And that makes that so much easier that we don't have to be travelling in the evenings. It's a different thing in Highland. When you live in Highland, you, you get used to, you're going to have to go 120 miles to, you know, to to do anything really. So yeah, we don't really think too much about it, but it's the, the connections via the virtual world, that definitely helps. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we are, although we have got a physical office, we don't tend to be in it that often. Um, it's just mainly a space for brainstorming and coming together and just catching up uh, and supporting each other. But I mean, I do virtual meetings all the time. In fact, it gets to the point I'm like, what, you want me to come and meet you and, and waste time? traveling when I could be just working away you know so it is very much like that and when we speak to our members we say do you want us to have like we can come and do you know meetings there for and they say no we don't want you to to waste the carbon we'd rather do it online I was talking about the fact that I run the Aberdeen Climate Action as well the climate cafes we used to get people coming in to Aberdeen City when we were doing them face to face which just started again from Huntley which is like an hour away you know and you have to count in the whole travel bit on either side you know um, and they didn't think anything of that because that was quite as Joan was saying it's quite normal so when people live in, in the, the deepest darkest paces in the shower they're quite used to traveling into Aberdeen because it let's be frank all roads lead to the major city don't they uh, unfortunately in a lot of respects so it is that matter of virtual connections but also you going to places as well where you can and linking in with the current um, community groups and community councils you know the current kind of structures 
to just ensure that that linkage. That's quite important to do that once or twice, just to get that kind of real connection. And then it's virtual, really. Yeah. What is a typical day or a week in the job of a climate hub manager, just to give people more of an idea what you guys do? Um, if, if I start, I might never stop, Casca. <laughs> a typical day or week. So it is mainly from my perspective of the project manager, it's mainly coordinating the other staff, making sure that we're dealing with any inquiries that's coming in, forward planning for what we've got coming up. So, for example, this week we are in Climate Week going on a bit of a tour. We've got Johnny, our Islands Development Officer, he's going over to Shetland, so we're coordinating what groups at the moment he's going off to visit. Myself and the rest of the Highland staff, we are going on a tour which is going to involve public transport and also borrowing e-cars from various different community groups and doing a bit of a road trip and doing quite a lot of digital content and things like that. So we're busy planning that. We are busy also speaking to a web resource developer that works within the third sector to develop um, some kind of a platform that can assist volunteers to support people through the energy crisis, doing website development, like any number of different tasks we could be doing. I mean, example was last week, the very last minutes and the day that a funding application was due, we had one of our members who had completely lost the funding application. All was reduced to 600 characters on the entire thing when each question was was calling out for 2,000 characters. So that was a development officer stepping in and helping them to bump that up and to get that done. So, yeah, no two weeks are the same. No, they're not. And you know what? If I have a day that has maybe one or two hours that I'm not in meetings, I'm like, wow, I've got time to think because you just don't. That's why I pack my meetings virtually because otherwise I would not have time for them all. My Tuesdays are a staff all in the office day. So that that day is all about management and staff. You know, are you doing this? Have you done this? What are we going to do here? Who's doing what? You know, let's let's pull this together. And then it's speaking to all different people to different networks put together. So this week I've been speaking to university no, RGU, um, uh, Grampian uh, Re- Regional Equalities Council last week and NESCO last week to try and do stuff to do with, with them and key in with them and James Hunt Institute to tie in with researchers and just a lot of that sort of strategic stuff. Last week we had an adaption resilience event, which is really great. So that was a lot of like rehearsals, checking that everything had be done, you know, just making sure it was all there. And then I do a lot of speeches left, right and centre for like conferences and this and that. PB, a lot of PB discussion and brainstorming and, and meetings. We've got our film. So our NESCAN film, Northeast Communities, Our Green Journeys. It premieres this weekend in Ellen and next weekend in Bankery and then it'll be in Aberdeen City. So we had to look through the film, check the edits, make sure that everything's for you know all the kind of stars were coming along for Q and A sessions, you know, so it's just that oversight, and you get pulled into a huge amount of stuff, and it can be quite last minute a lot of it too. So I think like, oh my goodness, next week's looking not too bad for meetings, and I know that by the time it comes to Monday or Tuesday, I'll be in a usual position of having absolutely no time to think and breathe, and definitely not have little breaks. So it's full on, varied, uh, and a lot of of staff management. Yes, well, thank you for making time to chat to us as well in amongst all that chaos. I think you sort of touched on this already, but if you can specifically talk about what kind of support you provide to the local communities 
to help them with climate action and beyond? It's very much individually led. So what support do they do they want and need? You know, with like, we're here, come and ask us anything and we'll signpost you. And if there isn't any support services that we know of, then we'll provide you with that help. So for instance, you know, if a, if a group needs to get funding, then we've got a funding officer that will help with the funding. If a group wants to know how they can be constituted, then I'll put them in contact with our TSIs to the governance. And if they don't have necessarily the right information, then I'll try and help myself. So you get a lot of different things or you have people saying, well, I don't know much about this and say, well, actually, that's a good idea. We'll create an event for that. Or people coming in and say, for instance, are you saying, well, we've got this research project. We really want communities to be involved. Is that something you can help with? So you have a lot of different ways in which you really provide support. I mean, Joan mentioned um, their climate festival. We've got Climate Week Northeast that we that we um, organize each year. So, you know, it's a, it's doing helping groups to really showcase what they're doing. And it's also been that comm center of, of putting stuff out there for them to actually know all these events and things going on, but also what other people are doing. And it's providing a mechanism for peer knowledge and support, you know, so and um, putting a lot of resources on the website, but also having meetings like for members that people can come along to, creating working groups so that people can chat to each other about stuff. And it's just being really flexible about what people come to you with. It's that simple, really. Try and put in place a lot of resources that people don't necessarily need to come to us, but can find it on our website. Yeah, it's kind of not about reinventing the wheel and, and being that signposter. And different groups have got different levels of needs. Sometimes it's just been a critical friend for a funding application. Other times it can be actually trying to source funding and really working it through with a group. We try very hard to be responsive and make sure that we're putting on workshops and events. So a really good example of that was when the Investing in Communities funding was out from the Scottish Government. And we suddenly had a lot of groups who had received funding in the past, but weren't doing any form of climate action. That criteria was completely new to them. So actually sitting with those groups and working through and them discovering, it's like, oh, oh, that thing that we do is that is actually climate action. And yes. There's various other initiatives that are happening across Highland and the islands. So there are carbon neutral islands that have been selected in Orkney and Shetland. So Johnny, our development officer, is working quite a lot on the that's just work that's getting going. There's a regional land use partnership, which has been trialled in Highland as well for the Northwest 2045. So we work with them, supporting that. And also Climate Action Towns in Elness and Invergordon. We, one of our, our development officers that's based in Inverness actually does quite a significant amount of work with Elness and Invergordon. But as well as that, like we're doing quite a lot of work with the Golspie community because that has been selected under Green Growth Accelerator funding to, to develop some form of nature-based solution to the flooding there. So... But sometimes it can be just as that example I gave on Friday of last week, somebody who had just lost their funding application and needs to be submitted by five o'clock and we just dive in and help. Joan, can you explain the investing in communities funding uh, a bit more? Investing in communities funding is the main channel of Scottish government funding now for communities. It's very much about reducing inequalities. Um, That's what the focus is of the Scottish government and reducing inequalities within our communities. Basically provides core funding for organisations and it's a a kind of three-year funding award. And this year, the Scottish government, when Investing Communities was open, it's asked for the groups that were responding to that 
to also be carrying out some form of climate action, that the work that they were looking to do was linked to the just transition. A lot of climate action groups in Scotland have previously been funded by Climate Challenge Fund, but that funding has gone into investing in communities. You know, the Scottish Government is trying to link the reduction in inequalities with how we're taking climate action within our communities. So you had two different sorts of groups who were trying to apply for it. Those who had been doing what they felt was climate action, and now they had to start thinking about what kind of outcomes they were looking at for health and well-being um, and reduction of inequalities, or you had the groups who had just been solely focused on health and well-being and reducing inequalities who were now looking to carry out some form of climate action within their applications as well. So quite a major shift in how people were thinking about the funding. What kind of uh, community groups do you support and how do you draw them into the network? So, I mean, we started, the network was formed out of, of organisations that identify as climate action organisations. So that, that that was our initial kind of membership. But now it's gone really far wide and we want it to be anybody, so individuals or groups that want to be part of it. <laughs> Do you know, it's that simple. Uh, we want to have every group for their projects to either, you know, have a focus on climate action or be driven in a sustainable way. Um, thought about, you know, how can we do this in a circular economy way? How can we just reduce carbon so that it's mainstream through all activities? So, for instance, we have associate members, all the kind of universities and the councils are associate members. We have like um, schools and we even getting like political parties wanting to be kind of like our members, which were saying, OK, we'll have to think about that one. You know, so we, we just want as wide a partnership as possible, really. But also it's really good because I think the wider the membership, the more that people can help each other, the more that there's an idea spread going on. So we're going out at the moment to really try and get all those community groups to join that don't identify as community climate organisations, for instance. If you're not like a charity or a social enterprise or a group, you're more of a, a business or a kind of public entity, then you can be an associate member. So you don't get voting rights, but you you can still be involved. That's very similar to Alison as well. Mm-hmm. Everything from new entrants, so people who are just looking to carry out some climate action and want to at what kind of group they need to form, to social enterprises, to the large development trusts that exist across Highlands and the Islands, to any form of groups in between community councils as well. Um, We've worked quite a lot with community councils. So how do you um, draw them in? I mean, what's the message you're sending out to attract people, especially those who are not very quickly then identifying with the climate action part of the hub name? funding. It's an opportunity for groups. The Scottish Government did it with investing communities funding, where you were expected to have some form of climate action embedded in what you were doing. If the Scottish Government has done that, all of the other funders are going to fall in line. They are all looking that you have got your environmental policies, having your net zero policies. Everybody's having to look at that. I would also say that it's not a hard sale at the moment to draw community groups into this realm, because We've been through COVID and there's that kind of pervading sense of localism. We're now going into an energy crisis. It is there. It's 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 in people's heads now. Like we have to be doing something. And so I don't know if there's so much that we need to draw them in because they're coming anyway. 
I think that it is funding. I mean, we do seed funding, and from that, we get people coming in and then having um, conversations with us that then mean that they do then go on and do amazing things. For instance, we have a church that got some funding to do some, you know, cushions and stuff and do an outdoor area for New Scots. That's now doing a whole weekend of, of a climate festival that would not have necessarily occurred if they hadn't had that initial contact with us and, and we supported them. And then they come in to us and we want, to, yeah, we thought about doing this. And we're like, fantastic. Then we can give you some more because it's a different funding year and we can and our offices can come and help you so it's that kind of it does draw people in um but also because it's free <laughs> it's free help do you know like why wouldn't you and so it's getting visibility once you're visible and people see that you're another mechanism which they can gain help then they're going to join because it is free and because they get to know more of what's going on in relation to events and stuff like that you know and the way you can gain visibility and show your use quite a lot of times can be through funding. Climate hubs are funded by Scottish Government. So how much direction do you take from the government and how much is your work driven by communities you work with? In what way is it driven by the communities you work with? Like any other funder, we have outcomes that we have to try and achieve. But those are outcomes that have been set by myself and by Alison, by our teams, by right. our members, by what they're looking for. The Scottish Government is really looking for this to be community-led and grassroots level-led. So it's shaped by the communities, I think is the short answer. Yeah, totally. I was talking to our new um, SCAN network uh, coordinators who are working to facilitate creation of regional hubs elsewhere. And they asked for one tip how to do that, how to achieve that bearing in mind that they only have one year to achieve what uh, I, I think Alison you had probably longer run in time in terms of building a network and and trust so well I mean maybe I was part of a community group which helps yeah it's always good to have people that are that actually are the people that you're trying to get and um, that is vital I think to really be member-led is vital key tips you got to get out and pound the pavements and talk to people definitely <laughs> but it's about listening you've got to show that it comes from them everybody together is creating this and there you've got to put that you know on google form a google kind of thing and say okay this is what we're talking about is this the mandate put all your comments on it and then we will agree it and all of us will agree it and it therefore it is you know everyone then is bought in that and that's really really vital at the start um, what we did when we are a hub was, and I found this really useful, was taking, you know, time to actually get everything set up, but mapped what was going on and brought people together to really discuss what they're doing. And then what people, the most comments we've had of people on our website, that they really love the map we've got of what projects are going on in the area. But also from a, a support, we kind of went out and looked at what support services are already there so that we didn't duplicate and we could signpost effectively, but also have them along to that event. And they found that really useful because it gave them a real platform to talk to groups that may, they hadn't had contact with before. So I think that that sort of thing is really handy. I don't know. I mean, there's so much, Joan. What What do you think? I think it is. It's that mapping, networking, getting out there and getting your face seen, going to things like other networks that you can find that are in existence within that area, listening. And also having quite a lot of empathy as well for groups. Mm. That's something that I try to reinforce with all of our staff is that <clears throat> have empathy for groups, that 
you're not going to get a response to that email because that development officer who works for that organization is getting 30 emails a day you know have lots and lots of empathy and just keep on trying and keep on knocking the door and being confident a good listener it's reaching out I mean I actually had the feedback and I think it's really valuable Um, and it's something that I've done without realizing but it's good to actually make it conscious a hub is not there to be just simply a support like an institution it's there to ask for help too. And it's a whole give and take that's really important. So when you say, I need your help, it's a reciprocal relationship. And I yeah. think that's really important um, for community groups because it means that you're not like a quite a lot of government agencies which come in and like, you're the poor people, we have to help. You know, you're recognising their agency and, and their qualities and their experience and utilising it. And they recognise that because that puts you on an equal footing. I think that's really important to have that kind of, we're not above you kind of feeling as well. Great tips. We seem to be facing um, one crisis after another these days. And there was obviously COVID and still is COVID. And now the cost of living and energy price crisis going into the winter. How do you see your work is connected to these and Um, and how climate hubs are are able to support communities working with you in addressing those and maybe, you know, in doing it in more of a permanent way or creating some kind of legacy or permanent um, ways of dealing with that. I think it's varied. And forgive me if I break into what my other job is as a development manager for a development trust. So the sort of things that we've been doing is so there are both Keith and and Sutherland Poverty Action Networks, and there are very strong community plan partnerships in both Keith and Sutherland as well. And we've touched on a little bit of the work in Orkney and um, in Shetland as well. Because in Shetland, they have estimated that at the current energy prices, to not be in fuel poverty, you would need to have a salary of about £100,000 to be able to live in Shetland. So that gives you an indication of the levels of fuel poverty there are across here. We pay higher in transmission rates, despite a lot of the, particularly the renewable energy being generated here. It's also quite a controversial subject in Caithness because Caithness is largely, and the economy is largely built on having a nuclear power station, which didn't actually provide very much power into the national grid for very long. But there is still, this county sits on the, aspect of they would like to see more nuclear power happening but we have quite deep inequalities within our communities and I think for the moment we have been working with both Keith Ness and Sutherland Poverty Action Groups and Community Planning Partnerships to assist in any way that we can with an emergency response for this winter and that is in things like community larders, energy advice which is all important and it's all climate action and it's all things that communities can be doing right now but also making sure that what is on the agenda with all of these networks is what are the long-term solutions that communities can start looking at. So we have things like skill shortages and retrofitting and insulating buildings. Is that places where communities can step in? District heating systems, can we start to consider that for our areas as well? So let's not just look at the short term, let's look at the long term. And it goes back to that capacity building, which is one of the, the key reasons that we're here is There could be that we are starting right now with a group in a small rural area who are recognising that people in their area are really, really struggling. And so they just want a bit of training and how they can offer some energy advice. Who should they be referring people to for some energy advice? But also they're like, 
How do we get connected in to get a food larder? Where can we get surplus food from? If we help that group now, in five years' time, that group may well be a group who then has the skills to say, we've put in a district heating system. We've reduced reliance in our rural community on oil-based heating systems because we then went and did some kind of amazing district heating system or did something amazing with hydrogen because we were equipped with the skills as we went through that journey. So I think that's where our role fits in is, yes, help with the emergency response, be responsive to what's happening now, but also be involved in those long-term solutions. From our perspective, a lot of our members are really keen. So we, we've been help, helping them with funding bids, the Just Transition Fund, and a number of those bids were all about energy from deep geothermal to retrofit academies to other retrofit aspects to district heat. You know, there's been a lot of that sort of things to having more strategic industry bodies. So our members really want, A, for us to be involved in the consultations. Um, so, for instance, I've done quite a lot on the energy sprints that the government are doing for new en- energy um, policies to go into formal consultation stuff to also then be tied into the more practical stuff like Home Energy Scotland, what's going on, what can we do, to have events on things like um, retrofitting or tourism retrofitting and community power. So, for instance, in our climate week, we often do tours of the Donside Hydro. It's a local community scheme or, or the turbines in Huntley or in Udney. That's where, say, Aberdeen Climate Action's Climate Cafe can be quite useful because there's stuff on, like, on those topics. But it's about developing it as Jim was saying, the, the journey. And actually what we want to do is create a route map from, you know, you're a person, then you create a group all the way to being a social enterprise. Because I think that is basically where it goes. And a lot of communities are interested in their own energy supply because it means that they're self-sufficient. They don't have to do funding. So when you when you have a, a turbine or, or solar panels or a hydro, then you've got money that's going into the community that can support other sustainable projects. So, you know, with Adni, for instance, you know, they've they've now gone into like being all these other things that they can do from having, putting up bike shelters and a bike repair thing to doing um, education, to, you know, all sorts. I mean, members have created uh, booklets on how to retrofit. You know, now they're in Adni, they're doing all these tours that people can go into people's homes. I know that in Chroma Futures do the same kind of thing. So um, it's a matter of encouraging and supporting and linking people up so they can see what everyone else is doing. We've been asked to put together some kind of resource sheets and we'll do blogs about, you know, where can I go to get this? But actually, there's quite a lot out there already. So it's a matter of just promoting it on our social media and placing it onto our um, and highlighting it on our website, really. Fantastic. And I think we're almost out of time. Um, I just wanted to do the last question with you. So this is more of a, a, from your personal perspective, what do you think is the role of communities in driving the necessary change towards a more climate friendly and fairer world for all? It has to come from communities. People are place-based. They really care about what goes on right where they live. You know, that's where you're going to get the passion. Like, you know, our green space, um, we want this, we don't want that to happen. And, and really, that's where change occurs. And so in my view empowering communities to to create their own plans to have their visions to create their own plans to be in charge of their futures is is really where where we're going to get the vast amount of change that we need to drive different behaviors to get to to not just net zero but actual zero we're having a very top-down approach really turns people off co-creation is key if you co-create then you get a much better product at the end of the day one that's tailored to the actual needs of, of that community of our society 
one one that therefore doesn't have wastage in it. And also if there's some, and there will always be some uncomfortable decisions to be made, then if you actually involve the people in the decision-making process, they will accept that. They will know where it comes from and they will go along with it. So it is crucial. And a lot of times our communities have so much wealth of knowledge and experience that needs to be utilised. And I get a bit fed up with a few of the communities of some kind of like weird woolly headed people. And quite frankly, we're all part of communities. You know, it's got a spread of all of us, of all our talents and experiences and knowledge. We need to use them and tap into them, not just for business, not just for profit, but for creating the world we actually want to live in. Everything that Alison said, I can't top that. A top-down approach doesn't work. People motivate people and communities motivate other communities. Uh, One of the the key things that I use is that um, we talk about an awful lot about influencers these days and we talk about them as these Instagram influencers or online influencers. Community leaders and those who stand up in their communities and start taking action, they are the influencers within their communities. And Communities have a huge degree of influence to to have and to be listened to. I really strongly feel that communities are the motivators for change. Thank you so much for taking time to chat to me. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us, Kasia. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our Story Weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunitiesorguk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter.